0: and this is from the Buddha so you should view this fleeting world a star at dawn a bubble in a stream a flash of lightning in a summer cloud a flickering lamp a phantom in a dream and from Crowfoot, who was a leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the early 1900s. What is life? It's a flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. and from Ryokan, a wandering Japanese Zen monk. Our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into the empty sky. This evening I'd like to talk about one of the three characteristics, the essential characteristics of all phenomena. The first being dukkha, the second being anicca, and the third being anatta, suffering, impermanence, and no-self. This evening I'd like to talk about, explore with you, anicca. I was told by a Tibetan teacher about a place where he lived that was high in the mountains in Tibet in a very isolated area where people have no access to matches. And of course there's no electricity or gas for light, for warmth, and for cooking. So for these necessities of life, light, warmth, and cooking. A fire is necessary. To start a new fire each day without any matches is a bit of a project. It takes some time. So the people in this area never let their fires go completely out. Every day all day they keep a small fire burning and at night they cover it with ashes. So that in the morning there's at least a coal or two to start their day with. I was told that the Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with um, anicca or impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. Also when they finish their last cup of tea at night they turn their cup over for the same reason to let the next person know that they finished, really finished. So in a certain sense every night they prepare to die, they're ready. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart the only thing that we can really know for sure is that everything changes. And paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of impermanence is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teaching. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in his search, in his path for, search for a path for enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, grew up in very comfortable, very protected surroundings in an area at the foot of the Himalayan mountains that's now known as Nepal, seemingly living the good life. His father and mother were the king of the Sakyan clan in that area. And at Siddhartha's birth, a seer, a wise man, told his parents that this baby would grow up to either be an exceptionally wise ruler or if he encountered great suffering, he would become a renunciate, a great spiritual teacher. His parents, in order to keep him on the kingly track, set about to protect him or trying to protect him from encountering suffering. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red, red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban was of silk from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I did not once come down from the palace. But all of this protection, luxury, all of this sensual pleasure couldn't keep him. He really wasn't satisfied. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own and see what life was like beyond the palace walls. And so he asked his good friend Chana, the chariot driver, to take him on a ride into town. It's said that his father heard of this. And he ordered everyone and everything that might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. But as we know, it's really not possible to have this kind of control over life. So not long after they were out beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking along the road with a great deal of difficulty covered with oozing sores. He'd never seen anything like this before. He asked Chana, What's this? What's the matter with this person? And his friend responded, This is a sick person, very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everybody gets sick. Siddhartha had been so protected that he'd never seen such a sick person, it said. And he was disturbed by the sights, and he said he wanted to go home. He spent a pretty restless night that night. But the next day he wanted to go out again. And as they were uh, moving down the road, Siddhartha saw someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane, dry, wrinkled skin, very thin, wispy hair. And he'd never seen anything like this before, it said. And he said again to Chana, what's the matter with this person? Chana responded, this is an old person. Everybody gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get old. I'll get old. All of your friends will get old. Well, Siddhartha wanted to go back home. That was enough for that day. And he spent another restless night. But he wanted to go out again the next day. As they were riding along in the chariot, Closer to town, they saw a group of people all dressed in white and they were crying and wailing and carrying a plank above their heads with what looked like the form of a person on it. and was covered with cloth. And Siddhartha said, what's this? What's going on here and why are they crying? Why are they wailing? His friend said, this is a funeral procession. They're carrying a dead body. Everyone dies. I'll die. You'll die. Your parents will die." Well, this was disturbing to the young man, Siddhartha. And he said, It's enough. Let's go home. And that night, he barely slept. But the next morning, he wanted to go out again. Not long after they were out in the chariot, riding along, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth. He was walking down the road. He was walking with a lightness and a grace and an ease and flow about him, bearing an air of peacefulness. And Siddhartha said to Chana, Who's that? And Chana responded, This man is a renunciate. He's a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha said, Let's go home. This is enough. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into a very sensitive, compassionate human being, these sights that he saw, those four mornings, sickness, old age, death, and a truth seeker, struck him very deeply, struck him very profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, an insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed. And also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. And he found himself very interested and quite powerfully drawn to what the fourth heavenly messenger, as these four encounters are called, he found himself quite powerfully drawn to what the fourth messenger represented. Seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again, uh, from one of the Buddha's discourses, Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught person, himself or herself, subject to aging, to illness and to death, not beyond any of this, sees one another who is aged, ill or dead, he or she is often horrified or humiliated or disgusted, oblivious to himself or herself that she too or he too is subject to aging, illness, and death. If I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that would be not, fi- not be fitting for me. As I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And then the Buddha went on to say, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and quite unconsciously often, is the myth of things somehow staying the same, the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and how consequential it is to experience just one moment fully absorbed in the feeling of metta, as Patricia so beautifully talked about a few nights ago. He also said that even more powerfully and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena, the stage in practice where one knows very clearly and very surely the momentariness of all appearances, the powerful direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And again from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within. None of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here, seems so permanently in place. Some years ago, I received a postcard from a friend that had a very beautiful photograph on the front side, some sand dunes and mountains behind them. I looked at this photo with a great deal of pleasure. And then I turned the card over, and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago when an ocean covered this area creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So I turned the card over and looked at the photograph again with a different eye, we could say, but still with a pleasurable feeling. The places that we live in appear often as though they've forever been the way that they are now. And our attitude, our actions often reflect this. Some years ago when I taught in Israel, a place where so much strife has been going on for so many centuries, around whose place it is, I found out that Jerusalem, a city built of rock, on rock, Jerusalem stone is called, has been destroyed and rebuilt. Thirteen times over the centuries. With all of the traveling that I've done over the years, at times I've looked up into the sky, no matter where I am, and seen stars and various formations of stars that are very familiar, like kind of like old friends. And this is a little piece from the newspaper that i found. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will inter- intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of the Earth, save perhaps for the 1970s-era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than 5 billion years long after the sun has burned out and reduced Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. (laughs) However, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word form implies for most of us a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. So our world really can't be solidly objectified. Our world is a noun. It's, a ver- it's not a noun. It's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time we only know it as an abstraction, we know it as a concept. We mostly know it intellectually. And actually I think even more often we forget it. Or we ignore it. Or we're constantly trying to distract ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, if we tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, even how you want your next sitting to be in this retreat, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we come to face disappointment or maybe anger or judgment or sadness or grief and we've really missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. We're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, the a false sense of control, a false sense of permanence. So actually, much of the time we're practicing permanence. Much of the time we almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be. So much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to see more and more clearly we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that, in fact, the tighter we grasp on to our beliefs, the more limited our life is. So a good question you might ask yourself now and then. How often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs? with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, varying and changing opinions and all of the ideas about this and that and then try to hold on to it all very tightly. How often do I construct my life this way? There is a story that <clears throat> I'm told is true uh, about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research uh, on matter and its components, breaking it all down and finding that um, nothing really, there was nothing really substantial. And it said that at that point he went a little bit crazy and he started wearing these huge padded slippers around just in case he fell through the floor. We'll know what's happening if we see any of you wearing those fake slippers around. (laughs) In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? The beginnings and endings, the births, the deaths. Why can't we really just surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without impermanence, there actually would be no life. And from Thich Nhat Hanh, I think a part of which uh, was shared with us the other night by Patricia. <clears throat> if there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. And this is a poem by a man named Red Hawk. The Wheat Farmer Says Goodbye to His Only Daughter is the title. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go. But he's not free enough to weep. So he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish his heart blooms and like the last mad king of wild wheat he grabs his daughter and twirls her. Through the sea of grain he whirls her. She holding tight. He boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he is winded and amazed. On his knees, he embraces her. And then she takes her leaving like a wild wheat flower, dancing, waving in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go weaving, moving slowly through the moonlight. And he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now that his daughter is departed. To harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way, he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting, one by blowing away. Looked at from these perspectives, Anicca, impermanence, is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of the constant change and cycling of all of the life on the planet and the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in this changing process. Not always getting caught up, getting lost in, and sinking in hopes and fears, attachments, regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in similar volume, for instance, as the new life that brings such incredible beauty and joy to us each spring. And the new day, the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up. Anicca is one of the gifts of life. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? The most incredible nightmare. No change, no life. this is from William Blake he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise so how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things the way of things. There are many doors, many, many doors for us in our practice, in our life. It's said that there are 84,000 Dharma doors. So you're sitting for 45 minutes, an hour. Some calm, tranquility, a degree of stillness and sweetness developing and known. And then the thought coming through. Oh, this is good. This is really good. I'll just stay here for another hour, maybe even more. And then strong bodily pain. Sensations start up the leg. Maybe you continue to hold very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain or put up with it or tough it out or find a way to get rid of it or try to ignore it, or somehow pretend it's not even there so that you can meet your preference, meet your goal. This relationship to pain actually makes it a thing, something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do, the thing that you think will lead to your awakening sitting another hour or two, or maybe you relate to the pain via the without mind, the mind without an agenda, the mind that's not made up, the mind without any preferences, and even without the concept of pain. You might simply, directly and intimately connect with what is seeing all the varying sensations occurring in your leg and notice them changing, notice them moving, Recognize that, recognizing that this set right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static. No preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame. Just being with. Seeing and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. Really the right ground, just the right ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. And the Dharma door, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us, Many years ago, I was sitting a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Center IMS in Massachusetts, and I was taking a, a slow walk through the forest out back behind the center. It was during the height of autumn color. I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of browns and clear yellows, shimmering golds and greens incredible beauty, and I was very immersed in this experience, and then all of a sudden a knowing came in, not through thought, not at all through thought, but a very deep intuitive knowing that this beauty is death, that the world is dying in its unbearable beauty. I cried after that for uh, about three and a half days. (laughs) Not continuously, but off and on. Um, And quite deeply at times. As some of you know on long retreats we, when we need to cry, we can. I was grieving the loss of the world, so to say. Feeling my heart breaking. And at the same time there was an elation. It was an opening an opening and a release. Soon after this, a friend of mine who was a Buddhist nun at the retreat center at that time gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart, I realize realize this world is only a dream. The oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark to light, rainstorm to sunshine to cloud cover, the seasons, changing sensations, the movement of the breath through the body. And Mary Oliver, one of our favorite Dharma poems poets, writes, writes about this in her unique and beautiful way. Look at the trees, are turning, turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds, and every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it close to your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we are living under what one teacher called an assumed identity, the assumed solidity of our body and thoughts, quickly, very often quickly followed along by clinging onto the thoughts, feelings, emotions. All of the habitual fixations that we live with, believe, and call me, call mine, and think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to see, to experience more directly, clearly, and more often, that things, that the phenomena of life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to see to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, or as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body, each with their particular qualities, particular flavors, textures, that are constantly in themselves also changing. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to lose lose its strong attraction. Trying to control what is uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change that we call life, begins to soften as we begin to open our hands, so to say. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on, to try to hold on so tightly. The fear that's underneath the impetus to control, the fear of being in and with life as it is, begins to relax, open, weaken, The fear begins to fade as we surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. When a friend of mine uh, began to connect more deeply with the truth of anicca, and the understanding that he didn't really have control over the unfolding of events, And as he expressed it, he not only saw that his day never went just as he planned it, and he truly began to accept that this is how it is, he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. That this too was simply unfolding, undoing according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it starts, because as he said, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, or dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion, mostly irritation, anger at kind of taking an offensive stance at things, people, events, not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and that he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was really coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. And in part, this softening heart was forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are, hardening against the truth that things arise, change, and pass away without end. Occasionally people ask me as you probably ask yourself, or maybe ask others who practice, why do you practice? At one point when I was asked this, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is, I am practicing for my death. On one level so that if conditions allow I might have the great strength and clarity of mindful awareness to be fully present at what we think of as the Big Death. And I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will really be quite an extraordinary moment. But actually, it will just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles that we're practicing applying to that same moment just as they apply to every other moment. Just a moment to simply be with, to be with what's happening right here, right now in the body, the mind, and the heart. A moment like any moment to just be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with with beginner's mind in a fresh way a moment that has never been experienced before just like any other moment so I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present for this moment but the momentary reality of practice right now is that I'm practicing being present with the death the cessation of my conditioned self, the death of the habitually learned patterns that keep making, keep recreating this assumed identity, this delusion of a separate, solid self. And through the process, seeing how selfing keeps happening and letting go relinquishing this again and again and again. I'm practicing seeing the death of who I have thought I was and the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, little deaths, moment to moment, breath by breath, and in ways that we never could have imagined or expected. As our practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, of I, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more just as process. Beginning, changing and ending again and again every minute every second if we're really attentive. What appears as a steady, solid flow of experience even the presence of consciousness itself is not as we ordinarily perceive it. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion being as though phenomena happens with an ongoing continuous flow. When in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and passing, arising and falling away, on the most minute level, second by second by second. And this is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye consciousness as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent, mind and mental phenomena as impermanent, mind consciousness as impermanent, mind contact as impermanent, and sees whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. This, yogis, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbāna. The acceptance of change, of the forming and unforming, of the birth and the death, is actually, really, truly the acceptance of life. All of the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing including what we think we want, what we think we need. Our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right at any given moment can change quite rapidly, as you've probably noticed. Again, another uh, three-month story from years ago practicing at IMS. In the back dining room there, there are some shelves where Yogis keep special their special things on uh, needs or wants, and I had a little stack of things on the shelf. One day I got a note on top of my stack, and it said, uh, Would you like some green tea on the stack next to you? Uh, you're welcome to take some. Well, I was very pleased by that, so I took some and enjoyed the tea. Next day, very pleasant experience. The next day I got another note, it said, um, it was in November or late October, I see uh, it's getting cold out, I notice you don't have a hat. Would you like a hat? Well, that wasn't quite as pleasant. I felt impinged upon. I wrote back a polite note, said I have a hat if I need it I'll wear it. (laughs) The next day I got another note on top of my stack and it was um, a Dhamma question. And I was very irritated. It was extremely unpleasant. I thought I might write back a note of aversion, but I didn't. I just noticed how unpleasant it was, didn't write back any note, no more notes, and never got any back. At the end of the, uh, just to finish the story, at the end of the retreat, this person and I met uh, and spoke, and he was quite relieved, he said, that I didn't write back any notes because he too was having quite a rocket of, you know, seesaw of pleasant and unpleasant just in writing the notes and then getting them back. So pleasant experience, changing into unpleasant experience and vice versa, very quickly can move into likes and dislikes and then very rapidly move into seeming needs or rightful rejections. So we're happy. We're unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which are themselves also changing moment to moment. As we open and see more clearly, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less and less judgment. And we might begin to see that we are also still, to whatever degree, acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance, acted out of forgetfulness, acted, or more accurately, reacted out of old, conditioned, habituated places of suffering, many times ourselves. And so we change. And we begin to meet ourselves as well as others with more compassion. Thirteenth-century Zen master Dogen spoke about Buddha-nature and its relationship to impermanence. And he said this, We do not just have Buddha-nature, we are Buddha-nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, the great compassion, impartial care, love that may include one's enemy. Many of us, probably most of us in this room, have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When my mother was in her 80s and 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of the mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself and to me, she said, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating over and over, it's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And then once, when she was 91, and we were standing next to each other looking in the mirror, she said, I look older than everybody else in the whole world. And then she said, It doesn't match how I feel inside. And then again she said, It's so strange, it's so strange. Is it strange, really? Stranger than what? It's just life doing its thing. Life being lifey. This is a poem that was given to me by an Israeli student. It's called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon, bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines, so we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies, that gradually betray us, gradually prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked at your face in the mirror for a long time, just focused and looked for a while? It keeps changing, just keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Whose face is this? Who sees? And this is uh, from Stephen Mitchell, his version of Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough with its long eyelashes, full lips and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot, Kneeling there, gazing in the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, He would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. And again, the mirror of nature as a teacher of impermanence. another brief three-month story. I was sitting out behind the small dining room at IMS watching the grasses each day, and it was late fall. The grass was losing its moisture, drying up, losing its color, changing shape, curling over, changing form. And I noticed all this quite acutely. Are we different than this? Are we really any different than this? What's the dharma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use or how many vitamins we take or how many energetic walks we take, how much yoga we do, good food we eat, no matter how much our, our skin still dries out, our hair still loses its color, our bodies change shape. No matter who we are, no matter how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep. And there's nothing that we can do about it. And another poem by Liesel Mueller. She calls it Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. It seems that if we're really truly inclined towards freedom, we have to give up the notion that change, or that even death, is a catastrophe, a mistake, detestable, avoidable, or even strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, learning experientially about change and the cycling of life and about our direct and immediate connection to the process. And this is from A Cherokee Feast of Days. Autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because this clear seeing of impermanence leads to the end of confusion and anguish. Clear and sure insight into the impermanence arising and passing away of phenomena leads to the understanding of the cause of suffering. Clearly seeing the this arising and passing away, knowing very surely the momentariness of all appearances leads to the understanding of the conditional nature of all phenomena, the selfless, empty nature of all things, which includes ourself. This insight being both the seed and a primary fruit of liberation. In our thinking, I think most of us assume that permanence provides security, and impermanence doesn't. But actually, although change can be very difficult and sometimes quite disturbing at first, as we open to it and get to know it more deeply, And Nietzsche can really be a profound inspiration to go deeper in our practice. In 1985, my house burned down to the ground. Fortunately, no one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. A few days after we'd arrived at my mother's house, I received a phone call from a friend who was telling me, called to tell me that my house had burned, burned to the ground. And my first response was one of denial. I said, oh you're kidding. But of course who would call a friend up a few thousand miles away and make a joke like that, Uh, especially it was Christmas, not a, a bad joke, would be a bad joke. So after we finished our very brief conversation, I hung up the phone And I cried very hard for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, just held me, didn't ask any questions at all, just let me cry. And by the end of uh, that cry, I went in the other room and sat with my brother, and we had a discussion. He was there visiting also. We had a discussion for about two hours. At the end of our discussion, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, to bind me anymore. And just to make a reference to that, uh, I had gone uh, to visit my mother that holiday with the idea of considering what to do with my house because I had wanted to take a year away from my regular life to look for uh, my spiritual path, so to say, um, a way to live in a different way. So I was trying to think, should I sell my house? Should I rent it? Should I, you know, all those questions. So we could say the spiritual path burned its way open for me, literally. And as many of you know in Asian countries, it's quite usual for people in their 40s or 50s, or people when their family responsibilities have um, essentially come to an end, they go to live their life out as a spiritual life. And that's what I was looking towards. So to make a long story short, I ended up going to Asia for a year and a half. And I practiced quite ardently, quite diligently, and then continued in a similar vein when I came back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's certainly a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be here now with you in this way. That huge change was really a great gift that continues to unwrap itself. And this is a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. (laughs) Not long after the author Carlos Castañeda died, not long before he died, not after he died, before he died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And I wanted to share just a little bit from a man named Michael Ventura who was one of these three people who was having lunch with uh, uh, Carlos. This is what uh, Michael Ventura wrote. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering this woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or the generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair And remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and she herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't just be an exercise. Carlos said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it's as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. "'What's that mean?' one of us asked. "'It means you give yourself a command.' And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invoked something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing, or wishing to step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. Living more deeply with the acceptance of impermanence allows us to respond more freshly to what in reality is completely new. A moment every moment, any moment, never before met, never never before experienced. And so we practice mindful awareness, immediate presence. We practice seeing clearly. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness, a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. And we begin to understand that we're all part of this intricate, endlessly changing, reflective web of life. And we also truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and in others, the suffering created by trying to hold on, the anguish created by resistance, the resistance to the truth that every facet of life surrounding us and in us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. As understanding of impermanence deepens, it actually brings a great relief and lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. And there's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And I'd like to close the talk with a little poem by the Australian cartoonist and poet Michael Lunig. With every poem that Michael Lunig writes, he draws a cartoon. So I want to describe the cartoon that goes with this poem. It's a line drawing of a little man, little line drawing of a man. And his left arm is stretched out to the side, and in his hand he's holding a frying pan. And in the frying pan there's a big blob of black stuff with smoke pouring out of it. And the man's head is turned to the left looking uh, at the frying pan and the blob and the smoke and this is the poem that goes with the drawing we give thanks for the invention of the handle without it there would be many things we can't hold on to as for the things we can't hold on to anyway let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive fleeting and intangible They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening.